can't let you have too much fun. That was enough. Time to get into the text, right? Yeah, settle down. That's right. Get serious. Glad you're here. I want you to uh, take a moment and step back with me about 4,000 years ago, approximately. And uh, there's a man out studying under the stars. He worshipped the stars, I believe. And, um, and he was trying to discern from the stars kind of wisdom. And, um, that's what you did. How do you look at the stars? How many of you have gone out up here and looked at the stars? Let me just see. Yeah, they're a little brighter up here than they are in Denver. It's uh, pretty amazing. And you walk under the stars, and uh, you've never met the one true living God. And um, like all the, your friends and neighbors, you find something to worship because you believe there's something bigger than you out there. Boy, if I'm the, if I'm the final end, <laughs> how disappointing, right? What are you laughing at over there, Tim? <laughs> he knows me. <laughs> I mean, think about how disappointing it would be if, if, if your only hope was, well, I'm it. You're looking at it. Wow. And so the world history is full, full of people trying to figure out what is there out there. So you're out there and you're worshiping the stars. And all of your life, the stars have never spoken. And all of a sudden, they speak. Wow. Can you imagine that? God decided to communicate in language that this person understood. I've wondered what it was, would be like for um, Moses to be wandering through and see this bush that's burning, and he kind of comes up and looks at it, and I don't see it burning, and all of a sudden it speaks to him. I don't know about you, but I'd run the other way. I'd, that'd be kind of terrifying if the stars spoke, and yet I think that's what happened. In Genesis 12, here's what happens. The Lord said to Abram, we know from Joshua that he worshipped um, idols. He was one of the forefathers who worshipped idols. And based on his heritage, I suspect he was out under the stars. And you'll see why in just a second. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So not only do the stars speak out of nowhere, but they say, go. That's the first word. Go. You know, we don't know what it's like in our culture to serve idols who aren't real gods, only to find the true living God. That's not typically part of our experience. But can you imagine having a house full, like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, a house full of idols sitting on shelves, and you're worshiping and trying to appease them, and, and all of a sudden one of them starts talking to you? Can you imagine that? What that must have been like? For God, the true living God began to just communicate because the world is the world history is full of people trying to discern what the gods thought and no one ever could because there's only one true living god go and then this is what he says i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You've heard me use the language, being a blessing to the nations. That's one of our responsibility. Here it is. All the peoples, all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. Prior to this chapter in Genesis 12, it is a dismal picture. It's a dismal picture of, of humanity cascading into sin. One 
thing after the other. Abuse, horror, murder, you name it, it's present in these first 11 chapters. And the, the way we can hurt one another is astounding. You see God's grace kind of woven throughout there, but until Genesis 12, we don't know what God is going to do. And in Genesis 12, remember, here's God, and he creates this kaleidoscope of nations, Genesis 10 and 11. Genesis 12, he picks one, Abraham. Not because Abraham knew him or was faithful, but because God selected him. Why? To introduce himself to him, but that he would go and reach all the rest. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. God elected Abraham. He chose him to go reach the rest of the nations. Genesis 12. Then a little bit while later, by the way, we don't know what it's like to uh, have lived in this time. There's no scriptures at all. Hadn't been written yet. Um, I don't think they enjoyed the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do every day. So if our life was modeled after Abraham's, then we would have experienced God only a few times in our life. That was real faith to only have experienced God a few times and hear from him, but yet to live a faithful life. A little bit while later, Genesis 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Ooh, the Lord is our reward. What a great image, isn't it? But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He's a servant. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. He's using language that Abram understands. Count the stars if you can. I love that. If you can. Count them. I tried it once. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly you get confused. Did I count that star or not? Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's how many offspring you will have. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, so now we're going to go to Genesis 18. We're going to fast forward a few more years. And we're going to see, hear this incredible story. In Genesis 18, we have these three visitors appear to Abraham while he was sitting uh, near a tree, one of the great trees. And um, he, he talks to Sarah, and they're going to cook food for them and give them uh, food to eat, and so they're waiting patiently. You know, when we come to each other's houses, we don't often have to go out and kill an animal and sacrifice it and do all that work. So they, a mealtime for them was a, long experience. They would sit and wait. Okay, so the meal's finally there. And so they asked him, verse 9, where is your wife Sarah? And she's in the tent, Abram said. Then the Lord said, that gives us a clue who's talking to Abram here. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. So can't you just picture this? Here's uh, Abram and these these uh, three men, and she's hiding behind the tent flap, just kind of, you know, wanting to know what's going on. It wouldn't have been appropriate for her to go out and join them, but like all good wives, she wants to know what's happening with her husband. So she's sitting just behind the, the tent flap, listening to the conversation. And here's what they said. 
Uh, Abram and Sarah were already very old. Little detail, it's important. And Sarah was past the uh, uh, age of childbearing. So they said, I will return this year, this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. Can't you just picture behind the tent flap just chuckling? Right. I'm an old woman. Right. So she laughs to herself and she's, as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So the Lord said to Abraham, huh, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at this appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah's afraid and she lied. I didn't laugh. But he said, ah, but you did laugh. This is one of those places in Scripture where if you look carefully and you read between the lines, you'll begin to see the twinkle in the eyes of the Lord. Ah, but you did laugh. She's very old. Fast forward just a little time, probably nine months later. Chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Way past, way past the time when uh, she should have had children. Abraham lived most of his adult life hearing a promise, but seeing no evidence of it. Have you been there? It's interesting when you look carefully at the details of these stories in this text, you find that God may promise something, but not deliver it for quite some time. Here's one example. Isaac prayed that God would uh, help his wife to conceive a child, Rebecca, and she did. But the scriptures say it was 20 years later. In the Lord's mind, he answered the prayer. But in our life, that's not what happened. You've been there? You believe something to be true, but you haven't received the promise? You haven't seen the, the uh, proof of it? So way past the point of childbearing. Verse 3, Abraham gave him the name Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Okay, fathers, you ready for that? Mothers, how about you? A <laughs> hundred years old. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? So you have this picture, this scene. A year before, she's behind the tent, or nine months before, somewhere in there, chuckling. Yeah, right, like I'm going to have a child. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. Ah, but you did. Fast forward, and she's holding her son. Eight days old, he's circumcised, brought into the uh, family, into the covenant. And she said, who would have thought? And all my friends around me are here laughing with me. So let's name him Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs. That's what Isaac means. He laughs. 
God gets the last laugh. And we see something here that's just spectacular about our God that we serve. Yes, I really firmly believe there's a twinkle in his eyes if we could see it. One day we will in the new earth. And we're going to see the very things that we long for. A God who just loves us and loves to bring laughter and loves to make us laugh and loves to do it in a way that surprises us with joy. This is the background to this story in Ephesians that we're going to look at. In Galatians, many, many years later, we have Paul say something very interesting about Abraham and about us. In Galatians 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham becomes the example of who we are because Abraham wasn't Jewish. Jewish nation hadn't been conceived yet. Here's, here's God, kaleidoscope of nations. God chose one man to reach the rest. And so Abraham goes back and predates the law. He predates Israel. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. Scriptures foresaw, foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here's the gospel. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the gospel. That's fulfilled in Christ. You know the story. But let's don't lose, the, the, uh, let's don't lose track of this heritage, where it came from, way back before they even heard of all this stuff that we read in the New Testament. God announced to Abraham ahead of time, in advance, the gospel, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I wonder how many believers in the one true living God have been born and died in the history of the world. I bet it would be like counting the stars in the sky, wouldn't it? I don't even know how many there are alive today. But it's more than I could count. That's the background to the story in Ephesians. So if you'd like to join me, I'm in Ephesians 2. You may remember, we're in a series, and we've entitled it Waking the Dead. What happens when the dead wake up? What happens? That's what happens when a person turns to Christ. Right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you have been made alive together in Christ. That's the image of baptism. You're dead in your sins, but when you come up, you're alive in Christ. That's the picture. That's what baptism tells us. What happens when you wake the dead? And I argued last week that you can't really understand deadness until you've been brought to life. It's not possible. You can't really understand the world around you until you've been brought to life. We saw the Matrix clip. I know it shocked a few of you. I've had many conversations all week. But you have to be brought to life to understand what death is all about, to understand where you came from. So in chapter 1, remember we argued that when a person wakes up from the dead, they begin to move across the aisle to people different than themselves? We got that from Ephesians 1. In the second half of chapter 1, verse 15, when a person wakes up from the dead, they become a blessing to others around them. They begin to fulfill the promise to Abraham. They become a blessing to the nations. We argue that. And then last week, we argued that when a person wakes up from the dead, 
they begin to truly understand the broken world, the world as it really is, because they can see it now with growing and greater clarity of what's going on around them. So what's going to happen today? Today we're going to look at, and this is the surprise and the argument in Ephesians. This is the turning point. When a person wakes up from the dead, they join the human race. Now remember, we're looking at this from God's perspective, and God's perspective in Ezekiel 37 is that the world is a bunch of dry bones, skeletons, laying out in the desert, and a spirit comes and brings life to them. And people, one at a time, begin to stand up. They join the human race. So, Mike, I don't know when you came to know the Lord, but on that day, you joined the human race. Susan, I don't know when you joined the, uh, became a believer, but on that day, you joined the human race. That's what happened. Don, I don't know when you did, but on that day, that's when you joined the human race. That's what happens. Now, we use language in Scripture, which is very good language because it's biblical language, but sometimes we lose the meaning of it. We talk about being transformed into the image of Christ. That's, that's kind of heavy language, isn't it? But what it really means is Christ is a true human. When you look in Scripture, you see what you're becoming by looking at Christ. He is a true human. Therefore, being transformed in the image of Christ is the process of you becoming a true human. Being restored to what you were created to be all along. You were meant to love people. Now you can figure out how to do it. You were meant to forgive people in a broken world. Now you know how to do it. You were meant to carry one another's burdens. Now you can figure out how to do it. You were meant to be generous with what God has blessed you with. Now you know how to do it, and you enjoy the, the surplus, the, the wonderful blessings that come from that. And so the journey through life, the Christian life, why does it matter? Why does it matter if we're faithful or not? Why does it matter if we obey? Because that's the process by which you are becoming a true human, just like Jesus. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. You're becoming like him over time. You understand what I mean by that? How many of you would say, when you look at your journey, you love people better now than at the beginning? Let me see your hands. And you find more fulfillment from that. That's what happens. So when you, when you turn to Christ, including our animals, by the way. <laughs> in fact, I told Tim Glasgow I need to spend time with him. I asked him, man, these trees, these colors are fantastic. And he said, now I'm paraphrasing you, uh, Tim, so if I get it wrong, uh, for, forgive me. And he said, yeah, and it's two or three weeks late. And I said, what do you mean it's late? How could it be late? Now, you never have to understand. I never took biology. I don't know anything about plants or any of that kind of stuff. I said, how could it be late? And he said, well, he said, when all the moisture came, we kind of, the plants kind of thought, well, they must not be time to enter the winter. It's, we're going to keep feeding them, and so they're going to keep growing. And, 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 I, and I told him, I said, I, I've never understood how the trees worship God, but the Bible says they do. I need to spend time with him so that I can grasp how when he talks about plants, they come alive to me. Right? They worship God. So I don't want to leave out our animals. They're included in that process as well. When you turn to Christ, you enter the human race. That's what happens. That's what we're going to argue. Everything Paul's been arguing up to this point is to get us to this. All right. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, quote, uncircumcised, 
by those who called themselves, quote, the circumcision. Paul's got a little tongue-in-cheek going on here. And then he gives us a, comment, a little comment, which is done in the flesh by human hands, done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is a repeat of chapter 1. Remember at that time, Gentiles, you were excluded from Israel, the covenants of promise. You were without God. It's a hopeless situation. By the way, I don't think that's the way God intended it. I think that's the way it ended up. I think the Jews kind of did this. You're not like us, so stay away. Stay out. And just the opposite was intended. God said, remember at the base of Mount Sinai, if you obey my commands, I will make you a kingdom of priests on behalf of the rest of the world. I will make you a holy nation. You will be different from the nations around you. So every time God gave a command, Israel began to look very different than the nations around them. One command at a time. And each command made them look different, which made them holy. And these commands were designed to attract the world. It was designed to make the nation say, our God never speaks, but theirs does. I'd like to belong to that God. Our gods don't care for us, but their God does. I'd like to be part of a, a group that their God cares for them. They care for one another. We don't care for one another. Not anywhere near to the degree that they do, the Israelites. I'd like to belong to a group where people care for one another. I'm giving you a glimpse into where we're going. That's what was supposed to happen. But they had done this. You're not like us, so stay away. So the basic argument is that they were far away, far away from God. That was the message they had heard. But Paul has a new one. Look at verse 14. It talks about Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. So what does that mean, Gentile? You don't know much about this whole one God thing. You serve a pantheon of gods in the Roman Empire, none of whom have ever spoken, and you're telling me that I'm being brought near to this one true living God? Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, pause, we have a little pun going on right here. A little pun. Look at what he said in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, quote, uncircumcised by those who call themselves, quote, the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So this fleshly act of circumcision has kept you out. And now it's by the fleshly act of Christ that you're being brought back in. So a little pun going on here. Verse 15, he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. You see it? Jews and Gentiles? Like this? And what has he created? See it? One new what? Humanity? Some of your translations say one new person, one new man, one new self. 
one new humanity. This is the phrase that links all of Ephesians together. And we're going to see it again in Ephesians 4. It's very important. He created in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It's hard for us to understand what it was like before this period of time, isn't it? When only one people group knew the true Lord and no one else was allowed. And he broke this all down. He created one new humanity. Welcome to the human race. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So what do we know about this, uh, this whole process? Well, it says he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We're, we're not quite clear to what exactly he was referring to here, but I can tell you this, that there was a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles that had been created by the Jews, and it had to do with the Mosaic law. You don't wash your hands, so you're not clean, so you're not welcome. And I think it's illustrated in the temple. In the temple proper, there was a fence going around the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, the Court of the Women, and uh, the Gentiles were not allowed to go beyond that fence. And we have, we have discovered through archaeology some of the signs that were hanging on the fence. It said something like this, Foreigners, beware and understand that uh, you're the cause of your own death should you enter. It was a warning. You step inside, guess what? It's going to pay with your life. You're not welcome here because you're unclean. By the way, that's true in almost every temple I've been in. A Buddhist temple, Hinduism, a Hindu temple, they have barriers. As a Hindu, I can't go past this into the holy place. I can stand and take pictures all day long if I can look through the door, but I can't go in. I have no idea what goes on in there. This was not unusual. So they had this barrier, like all the nations had done, which kept you out, the Gentiles. And that was symbolic of the whole issue that Christ came to solve. The Jews had failed, fundamentally failed, to fulfill uh, what God had wanted. And so he broke down this barrier, this dividing wall, in his flesh, by his death, by fulfilling the law so that the law no longer became an issue. It was no longer an issue. What was the new covenant? I will take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, 37. I will put my law on your hearts. That's the fundamental message of the new covenant. No longer do you need teachers. That was part of it. In fact, the New Testament repeats that. You don't need teachers. You can do exactly what I do, what Mark does. You just pay me to do the work because I love it and deliver it to you. That's what makes us gifts. We're called gifts in the New Testament because you don't need us. Does that make sense? It's an amazing story. So he set aside the law. Was the law the problem? You know, uh, when I was in the classroom, I'd ask students, what adjectives would you use to describe the law? And 98% of them were negative and pejorative. You know, it's hard. It's a slave master. You can't keep it. It's impossible, blah, blah, blah. Yet Paul says in Romans 7, that the law is holy, righteous, just, and good. The law is good. 
The law did some wonderful things. It helped the people in the ancient world serve the one true God carefully. It, by giving the commands, it distinguished them from the rest of the world and gave them a natural way to present this gospel that you will be a blessing to all the nations because they would be able to say to their friends, look how we care for our women. Don't you want to be a part of us? We will be a blessing to you. That's the heart of the gospel. Look how we do this. Look how we do that. You should come. And so the problem wasn't the law. The law was there to be a blessing, but it was also there to expose sin. We saw that last week. How, Paul said, how would I have known it was sin unless God had said, don't covet? So the law served a second uh, role, and that is to expose our sin and our need for grace. Now, that's kind of scary when you get your sin exposed until you realize that the one true living God is there and all about grace, and he wants to heal all that. The whole reason he exposes it is so he can transform it. He's redemptive. That's the word we use. He's turning, into you, turning you into something wonderful and good. And so the law wasn't the problem. It was the misuse of the law by the Jews that said, you're not like us, just stay out. So Christ just fulfilled the whole thing and set it aside completely. It's wonderful. So what does this new humanity look like? Welcome to the human race. What does it look like? Well, let's look carefully at these words. He says... In verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So this new humanity, the human race, should be characterized by peace. When Summit County looks at us at DCC, do they see people that are peaceful? They should. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Reconciliation. This new humanity is... is uh, Characterized by reconciliation. When the Summit County looks at us, are we reconcilers? 2 Corinthians 5.18, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Do we bring marriages together, broken marriages? Do we bring estranged relationships together? Do we solve hostility? Do we, do we reconcile people to each other and to God? This is what this new humanity is all about. It's characterized by the removal of hostility. He put to death their hostility. And it's characterized by unbroken access to the Father. Verse 17, or verse 18. For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Unbroken access. We don't know what it's like in our culture not to have that. We don't know what it's like to have to go to a temple to sacrifice an animal. Go find a priest. We don't know that. All of a sudden, we have unbroken access to God at all times. Welcome to the human race. That's what it means. We live in the presence of God all the time. When Summit County looks at Dillon Community Church, do they see that? Do they see the presence of the one true living God here? They should. You should. And then look what happens. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, that's Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy what? What is it? Temple. To become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. 36 years ago, you heard last week, I became a believer. My stone with my name on it was placed in the wall. Patty, I don't know when you became a believer. Boom, there's another one right there. Ward, I don't know when you became a believer. Boom, 
at your stone, your name on it was at. And this temple's growing. It's a living temple. We're becoming a temple. Now, what does that mean? We don't have temples in our land, do we? Where do we look to define what it means to be a temple? How do we figure that out? Here's my basic view of the Bible. The Old Testament represents a tangible reality. You can, you can touch the walls, the stones in the temple. You can smell the animals as they're being sacrificed. You can hear the, the bleeding of the sheep as their, as their life is, is being ended. You can hear all that. Very tangible. That's what helps us understand true spiritual reality, which the New Testament is communicating to us. We live in a world of five senses and three dimensions, but yet God's called on us to live in a world beyond that. We've already read three times that we're in the heavenlies. Christ is in the heavenlies, he's in the heavenlies, we're seated in the heavenlies. I have no idea what it means to, uh, to be here, standing before you right now, and yet I'm seated at the right hand of Christ. Two worlds at the same time. That's why I used that clip from Matrix last week, because it wrestles with that very question. Living in two worlds at the same time, but that's what the Bible presents. That's reality. So how does God communicate true spiritual reality, which is living outside of those five senses and three dimensions? He does it by giving us pictures over here. So we are a temple. What do we know about the Jewish temple? That's the place where the word of God was taught and fairness was enacted in relationships. When the world looks at us, do they see us teaching the word of God and treating each one another fairly? Do they see us handling our disputes here in righteous ways? Because that's what they were supposed to do over here. This is where the poor could come and have their needs met. Temple treasury and a few other places, they had money to help the poor. When the world looks at us, the church, the true temple of the Holy Spirit, do they see the poor and the marginalized having their needs met? This is where, in the Jewish temple, this is where they worshiped God, Deuteronomy 12. In fact, the nation conceived of worship only as occurring right here. They didn't think of worship individually. It's what we did together. We praised God. I asked the question two weeks ago or three weeks ago, what's the purpose of worship? One of the purposes is to be the first voice of the gospel out to the nations. Let all of Israel worship Yahweh so that the nations will come. Does our worship, when the, when the county looks at us, as DCC, do they see our worship of the one true God as an attractive thing? Over here, this is where all the great festivals were honored, all the wonderful festivals that we read about, the partying, the dancing, the laughter, designed to make you praise God, designed to give you relief from a hard life. The Festival of Booths, eight days they celebrated. Music went 24 hours a day, and there was dancing nonstop. When the world looks at us, the true temple of the Holy Spirit, do they see dancing? Do they see laughter? Do they see praise? Or do they see seriousness? What do they see? Do you understand how the Old Testament prepares us for this image of what the true temple is about? The true temple of which we belong is living. It's alive. It's breathing. It gives life. It's a safe place. It's where the poor and the hurting can come. Those who are broken beyond description. It's where they can come. It's where we celebrate life together. It's where we worship the one true God. It's where we become a blessing to the nations around us. Let's don't do what they did. You're not like us, so stay out. No, it's the opposite. Let's enjoy them in their world and invite them in. Don't be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid to tell people that you believe in Jesus. It's okay. Even if they mock you, which they probably won't, by the way, but even if they do, you have the words of life. They just don't know it yet. 
So when you're sitting there getting your hair cut or you're, somebody's serving you the food or whatever it is, just ask them. Do you go to church anywhere around the area? Most of them will say no. Then just ask them, why not? And you'd be stunned at how many of them will say, I don't know. <laughs> they simply don't know. We are to be a blessing to the nations. That's what this true temple is all about. We are now the true temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should look like the true temple of the Holy Spirit. What happens when the dead wake up? You join the human race, and you become what God intended for you to be all along from creation, people who love others. That's how we share Christ. That's our voice of the gospel. And in your conversations, God willing, one day you'll get to the point where you can tell them specifically about Christ. But you don't have to start there. What was the gospel priest Abraham? All the nations will be blessed in you. So your first voice in the gospel is be a blessing to the nations. And one day you can tell them about Christ. All right. As the ushers come to prepare uh, to take the offering, and the musicians come to lead us in more worship, the offering is one of those ways, by the way, the offering and communion are one of those ways that we are a blessing. We are. Because you know what we do with your money? I, I think a lot of you probably don't even know. We spend it. <laughs> what we do with your money is we pray about it. We're careful with it. We use it for wonderful things. If you want to know, come in sometime and just ask any of our staff members, our elders, what happens. And you know what? We use it to glorify the Lord. We use it to bring about ministry. We have children that we minister to. We have broken people we minister to. We have people in poverty that we minister to. So I just want to say thank you for giving. Uh, we have confidence that God will work through you to give to us whatever he wants us to have. And our commitment to you is to use it well, to use it for his glory, and to use it wisely. So let me pray. Father, help us to be a blessing to the nations, Lord. And we, uh, we stop right now and say thank you for these offerings and these gifts that uh, we're about to receive from you. Thank you for communicating to our own congregation what we need. And thanks for taking care of us. And then thanks for giving us the privilege of being a blessing to the nations and to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.